Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show. Hey, Brent. Hey, Alan. We have guests. Yes, it's so exciting. It's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting. Now, uh, isn't this our first? No, this is not our first set of guests. No, we've we've had guests before. We've had lots of guests. No, I'm talking about COVID. Brent, stop talking so we can say hi to Nick and Todd. Nick and Todd, say hi to the AB to all three of our AB testing listeners. Wait, if there's two here, there's only one left. So say <laughs> hi to the other one. Hey, hey everybody. <laughs> hey listener, nice to uh, nice to meet you. <laughs> I bet it's Percy. I bet it's Percy. He's, uh, uh, he's the one listening. We're not live streaming today, but I, I Percy Patrick. Although in this case, Chris is probably going to be keenly interested. Chris, so, so when when Nick reached out to me, he said, "Here's that he Brent would running to off bike. into the weeds." Uh, it, so it's the AB testing podcast. So Chris Kenst, one of the three, yes, uh, I believe, is who referred Nick to us. Oh, that's right. That's so, right. So if if this whole Full podcast credit. goes horribly wrong. It's Chris's fault. Uh, we will all collectively just blame it on Chris. It may be good to blame it on Chris in advance right now. Perfect. Yeah. I, I'm going to certainly blame it on Chris. <laughs> this is our 142nd episode, still season one, because uh, we're too unorganized to have seasons of the AB Testing Podcast. And uh, I want to thank Todd and Nick for being here. And they're here for a reason. And maybe I shouldn't try and explain it, nor should Brent, even though we kind of did. We have a little, there was a little bit of a spoiler there and that Chris sent us to you. Can uh, one of you tell us why the hell you're here on my Zoom call and being recorded right now? I, this is me looking back to see, yes, we're, we're recording. Good. Why, <laughs> why are you here? Tell, tell, your, tell our listener why you're here. Okay, so th- this is Nick. Uh, I can do that. Uh, I had been referred to your podcast uh, by by Chris, who is the the, the other listener. And um, episode 135 was, uh, you had a discussion about record and playback tools. Does it make sense to be writing code now that record and playback is, you know, so effective and much less brittle than it used to be? And beyond that, should we be specifically targeting record and playback at developers uh, and marketing to developers? And so I'd reached out to you both and said, hey, it's kind of what we're doing, and we we kind of agree. Uh, and so here we are. It's controversy out there, but maybe not in here. But I, yeah, let's. That's this is this is going to be good. And I'm going to use this as ammo because not next week, but the week after. No, no, no. Calendar wrong. Next week. Next week, I am giving an AMA uh, and ask me anything at Test Bash Home. And I will be talking about the future of test automation. Well, I will be sharing my opinions about many of these things we'll be talking about today, which is great. Gives me, it gives me ammo and food for thought and, and plants my brain with all the things that, that sound crazy coming out of my mouth until I hear other people saying, oh yeah, that's, that's what we do. You're, you're cool. Uh, let's start with this question. Maybe this is one because I haven't done a ton of this is purely 
purely based on my limited experience, some of the new tools that are out there and then writing UI animation years and years ago and then watching people struggle and struggle and struggle with getting Selenium to uh, run some tests that end up being flaky in the long run. So talk to me about my belief that record and playback has gotten to a maturity where we perhaps don't need to handcraft UI tests in Selenium anymore. Am I am I in the ballpark with that or am I out to lunch? Is that today, a year from now? Like what do you think of when I when someone crazy like me makes that statement? Um yeah, I can I can answer that. So I think number one, we're definitely biased because we built a tool to to handle that. So we definitely do believe that that's the case. I think the the thing about it is that when you think about the 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 actual process of creating Selenium tests, you're taking uh, user actions and translating that into code. And then that kind of process can be very painstaking. I had done it myself. My background is as a developer and kind of doing it, I've seen kind of like how, you know, unit testing, component testing, integration testing, end-to-end testing. End-to-end testing, the, the code base end-to-end testing always felt like a poor abstraction layer uh, to me because unit testing is you're testing little bits of function. It's the perfect abstraction layer because the interface is code for a function. Um, for integration testing, um, there's a lot of great tools for it. And for things like H, you know, like API testing of a HTTP server or something, code is a good abstraction layer because you can represent HTTP calls well in code. For replicating what a user actually does, it never felt like a great way of doing it. So I think the approach of recording your user actions, and as long as those that recording has high fidelity, it actually records things that can be you know replicated. I personally think that is a better approach to, to building those kinds of tests. Hey, hey, Brent, I think he's saying I'm not completely out of my mind, and that's um, that that's I'll call that a win for a Friday. So he he mentioned a technical answer to that question. Right. I, I, he didn't mention anything around psychological evaluation, which I doubt he's qualified for. So I'm, I'm not quite leaving that one off the table. Definitely not qualified for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Um, so you're selling a product on this line. And I'm, I'm on your website. Like the, the marketing that I am, I am seeing right now seems to be targeting sort of the, the manual tester audience, which is kind of more of the traditional audience for record and playback tools. What's your marketing shift? Like, it, so Todd, I heard you just say that, yeah, you know what? The, we think the capabilities are there for, for, for dev to do this on their own. What's sort of the distinction that I'm seeing? Are, are you, are you still primarily sort of targeting the, the manual test audience? Are you going to dev? What's the strategy shift? Let me jump in first because I disagree with you, Brent. I think it, like I went through their documentation and they go into details that the air quilt manual tester would not be interested in. So I think they're trying to cover the whole audience. But but now that I've, I'm actually the actual expert who actually knows what they're talking about, I'm going to shut up and let you guys go. Well, I, th- I would say number one is, I'm, I consider myself a developer, but not a marketer. So the marketing language that you see on the language, uh, on the site is mainly me. And uh, I'll, I'll take the blame for it. Our tagline there is automation that anyone can use, but it doesn't really speak to any one particular person. 
Um, I think the the why we think that we're a developer, a tool that developers would use is because developers are using it. Like of our customer base right now, roughly, it's it's hard to say, but um, about a third are SDETs and QA testers, a third are developers, and then the, the other third is basically everybody else in an organization. So like a you know, smaller organization that just any old person might be testing manually, and now they're you know automating uh, automating that. So, so yeah, it just kind of, it, it, I think the reason why that developers are using it is because the recording um, fidelity is good enough that it saves them time. And also because we're developers and we, we built it for our own need. So I think some of that, like, you know, scratching your own itch came into play why you see, it's why you see the documentation is kind of like so extensive, like you would see with like a, any old API. Yeah. And I like it being for everyone. So, and, and I think you, and, and in my opinion, it is, uh, the website is written that way. I was in a panel discussion maybe three weeks ago. I can't remember the last 15 months for, have been a blur for me. Not sure about you. And I mentioned that I knew of developers that were using these, I hate to even call them record and playback. You know, Brett and I grew up in test in the nineties when record and playback tools were just so awful. Like you, you were, it was a, it was a stigma against you if you even mentioned them. But again, they're not the same anymore. But anyway, the point is, I mentioned that we're, what we're talking about now—that record and playback tools are actually useful. And I see developers using them. It caused a mental shift in one of the other people on the panel who said, "I never thought of developers using these things. This is making me rethink a lot of stuff." And I was thinking, "Great." Because I, I, there's something to it. I'm so glad to hear that that uh, developers are using your tool. I think it's good. One of the things we've been talking about in modern testing with Brent and I is, uh, again, we're not inventing anything. We're just talking about the things that are already happening. And one of those is developers owning more and more. And in some cases, the vast majority or all of the testing uh, being done for a product. Uh, not saying testers aren't needed, but in some products, the contact dictates that the developer can do all of the testing, including that bit of UI testing they need to do, and they can do it in a quick and reliable and repeatable format. Hallelujah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to see. Like um, when, I, when we started the company, like we had, I hadn't had any experience with it. We had evaluated some record and playback tools, but hadn't really had a great experience with it. But it's cool to see people using it like, you know, people that I, I was in their shoes a couple of years ago. I think with when developers are using it, the, the way I, the two ways I see it is uh, it's either the dev team themselves, there isn't a, a tester in the organization. So the dev team kind of owns their own tests like they would like a unit or a, a integration test, or there's a, a testing organization and they kind of set the framework and guidelines. And uh, then the developers are creating, uh, still creating for their own part of the application that they own. But um, you know, the, the tester is saying, okay, this is when you would want to use Reflect. This is when you want to have a component level test or API test or whatever. One of the things I talk about frequently is just pairing that developer with that tester and thinking about all the testing needs to get done, then dividing it up. One other thing to call out, and again, not trying to just plug everything about what you're doing, because honestly, I hadn't heard of your tool Reflect until you emailed me. But I'm looking over your docs. It's like, oh, thank God someone gets it. Like I just I saw the like the test you should create, which is 
Uh, one of the things, eventually, I'm, I'm weaving a story together here, but my, my brain isn't keeping up. I am part of an organization, or I was until recently, a very large organization with no dedicated testers. And But we a handful of people are coaches, consultants, helping helping the team do better testing, understand what testing they need to do. And our VP would sometimes ask me, for our listeners today, you've heard this story before, but he'd ask, "What? how is our team doing at testing? And I say, they do all the testing they know how to do. And which implies the good news, they do testing, but there's obvious they have some unconscious incompetence and we need to work on that. But in your tests you should create section, it's so common sense to like Brent and I, but maybe not to a developer brand new to testing. Like here, here's your core workflow. Here are the things that are going to stop you from making money. You need to be able to log in and register and go through the main workflow. And yeah, those are good things that you should automate because you want to test those through the UI. That makes sense. And you want to make sure they work. Otherwise, you're not making any money. And of course, you can use you. You'll have monitoring in place to make sure it's scale. You know, everybody's getting through the workflow. But, but it just it's just a common sense that sometimes is missing from some of the marketing that's out there. So, so kudos for that. Um, and that's maybe sort of just sort of a uh, an add on to Brent's original question. I think I think the 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 direction how you're marketing the website is actually very good. And I'm going to stop looking at it so I can ask the questions I wanted to ask versus go through your website. Brent, anything to add before I uh, roll, keep on rolling through here? Yeah, just to be clear. I feel like I you should send me to the bar for beers while you actually talk to these folks, so I'll shut up. Go on, Brent. Uh, yeah, except you're also the, the the tech for the podcast, so that, that kind of puts the podcast in harm. Um, yeah, and to be clear, like I, it, it wasn't making a judgment call around how you're marketing. I, the the uh, and in since Todd admitted uh, credit slash blame for it like I, I, I was I was mostly anything. using the opportunity to say you were wrong Brent that's all yeah yeah but let's let's focus on our guests and then you can you can leave the Brent abuse for a future podcast uh, you probably exceeded quota for this one already I have written down a I've written down a bunch of things um, in a bunch of different ways. Uh, we could connect to these two other other sort of topics. Like first off, I, I see like one on on your blurb where you request additional information. Like the the, the headline, I'll say I love this one, and and Alan will absolutely know why. Like ready to accelerate your testing efforts is the key highlighting question, right? And one of our mottos is that the goal of testing. Uh, uh, our goal of our podcast is to help people accelerate the achievement of shippable quality. And then third, uh, I don't know if you guys have had an opportunity to read this, but what is now becoming just basically one of our favorite pieces of literature is just a book called Accelerate. Are you are you both familiar with this book? No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not either. Oh, uh, well, I'll just say... Given your your role, I highly recommend that you read it. Um, it it's uh, so one of the things that's highlighted. So it was it's done by a PhD Nicole uh, Forsgrim, and I forget her partner, the co-author of the book. Uh, but then what they did is they went through and deeply analyzed. Uh, they did, they 
they did a bunch of scientific studies, uh, research papers, and then took that and turned it into a book. One of the statements that they call out is actually dev teams who own their own automation are significantly more, um, or rather the products where the dev teams own their own automation, those products are uh, significantly higher performing than those products that don't. Okay. And the, the rationale is on that one is essentially um, the separation of duties by forcing your dev team to own the test. It holds them accountable. And then they maintain that code base better, more frequently, et cetera. Go ahead. I have a question for you on that, Brent. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that's a capacity thing? Like, do you think that teams that put um, automation on the devs just have more horsepower to create more more uh, automation? Or do you think it's, like you said, the kind of separation of church and state, like just testing what you own means that you're just somehow implicitly going to test it better? So what's your take on that? Uh, so so um, my take is, uh, is based off of personal experience. So years ago, uh, I spent the majority of my career as a as a middle manager in QA, uh, but I've always been super technical. I have patents on test automation as an example. Then I left and joined dev uh, in, a, in a point in time when I, I took on a dev manager role in, in the Bing organization. So I'm here at Microsoft. Uh, this is my Microsoft office. Hopefully I don't have anything. Uh, our, very glamorous. Our, 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 listener, <laughs> our, our listener can't see it. Right. The, it looks different than the very, Microsoft it, Office I'm familiar yeah. with. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm one of the last vestiges that actually has an office. Anyway, so I made that move, and it was during a time where Microsoft was making a shift towards combined engineering, sort of beginning the process. And so I started on the dev team, no testers whatsoever coming from tests. And uh I had a mix of people who came from the old school dev and a mix of people who came from the old school test. And I turned them into a high functioning dev team. And uh, the big secret sauce that I encountered was that test role was a sort of mitigate risk. And uh, in a world where you're doing services, as an example, there are other strategies. So we, we, we actually learned that we can mitigate risk very rapidly by shifting to a, like a Kanban model. And so, for example, if I had one, and been continuously shipping, if I had one thing that shipped out, the small chunk of code, uh, it wasn't like a scrum model where I would be integrating at 11 p.m. the night before and then breaking everything the next day. It's I'm constantly shipping. And so it suddenly everything was on the floor the next morning, we know exactly what it was. It was this one thing which we could quickly revert and then go, okay, what test did we miss? Why did this go out, et cetera? Like, so in that world, I never actually discovered I needed it. it I had a need for a test. Uh, someone that, that, that safety net that checks things beforehand. And then as we grew, grew further, we realized things like TDD or, or even things like um, using, having the dev owning the test cases. 
Um, basically, one inherent thing, and maybe you will agree. I'm looking specifically. So, Nick, do you have a dev background at all? I no, I have a a operations uh, degree. So, I I studied supply chain theory of constraints, Eliyahu Goldratt, all that good stuff. <laughs> we love theory of constraints. I, yeah, new, I new podcast that. topic. Yeah, yeah, we could talk for hours about that. And so for me, you know, not to make essentially the answer, the short answer is no, but the long answer is I've always been in software. I've always sold software. I used to sell primarily to marketers. uh, And then when I moved back into, when I moved into this world and I I joined up with Todd and the rest of the team who we all worked together at a previous startup called Curolate, um, I suddenly realized like, oh, wow, this is supply chain management. This is theory of constraints. This is so I don't have the um, any of the technical skills to actually make anything useful happen, but I can understand it and talk about it a bit. Technical okay. skills are a dime a dozen. You got the yeah. real stuff. <laughs> so let me redirect because because so then I'll just specifically ask Todd on this one because I'm actually curious. Is this a universal truth? So, so from my experience, uh, this, this idea that Working smarter, not harder, really resonates with with the dev facility or the dev community, or put it in a different way, developers are inherently lazy. Yeah, that, we... that's a much better way to. I don't like that. <laughs> work smarter. That, that that's all BS. Right. But acknowledging that developers are lazy, one hundred percent behind that. Yes, and so first, there's going to be resistance when you try to get them to take over test. But if you can't continue to push and, and enforce that, then really magical things happen because of this principle that they're lazy. They want to do the least amount of work possible. And if they realize that they can't escape this work, then they start thinking through, okay, how can I do this? How do I get the right abstractions in place? How do I leverage tools that where I just do it once and then it magically resolves itself? From then on out, I think, and I'm gonna go ahead. I'm I'm gonna let you finish. I'm done. I'm waiting. No, I'm waiting for the guys. I hear Alan answering. Well, because you like were (laughs) babbling forever, and I lost interest. I have said before that the industry has a unhealthy infatuation with UI automation, and I think that if we would have let. Like one of the reasons we're in this conundrum and why we need products like yours and and all your competitors, not going to single anybody out here, is that and that we need developers to own this stuff is because is because developers hadn't had to own it is why we've created this huge bottleneck of huge number of these handcrafted UI automation that are generally flaky because of the nature of UI, the UI behind it. if devs would have owned it, it never would have got to this stage. Because we let separate teams own that stuff completely, we're in the inefficient cesspool we're in. But go go ahead. Commentary over. Go on. Go on guests. We have guests on the podcast today. Hey. I I sort of agree and sort of disagree with it. Even um, better. I think I think the um I agree with the sentiment. I think like a lazy developer, like laziness, a little bit of laziness or somewhat laziness is like a good trait in a developer. I certainly have it. Like I'm a procrastinator, so that's um, that's a sort of a way. Uh, it's a it's a subset of laziness. Um, but what my experience was, the last startup that Nick and I both worked at was 
devs actually did own end-to-end testing and we did it all manually and it it was like it was felt like a huge it was valuable but it felt like a huge waste of time in the sense that like you have these people who are like some of the highest paid people in the organization doing going through a spreadsheet and clicking on things every time there's a deployment so you know that i think the question the question is like why does that happen and i've talked to you know we have had plenty of people that we've talked to that they were in the same boat like I remember one uh, one of our earlier customers, we talked to them and said, yeah, we deploy twice a week. We have this 80-page Word document that we'll go through before the deployment. I think the, re- I think the reality is that the tools are, the, the tools just weren't good enough. Like you, you have this kind of push and pull between you need to ship code and you want to get enough testing in to find those bugs, but you can't have a developer 100% focus on test automation. So what are you going to do? They can't get it done with five hours a week of writing Selenium. So they just stick with the, the spreadsheet. And maybe there's fits and starts where you have the test automation you know, project like starting up, but it never gets done. Uh, that, was, that was my experience. So in that, in that world, why was the answer not, well, let's just hire a tester? We we went with an out in the last company I worked at. We went with outsourced um, crowdsourced testing, mm-hmm. okay. so that it sort of was. It's we sort of went that route. That didn't work well for us because, um, again, we had the developers writing the test cases, and so the developers weren't great at writing for a, like a non-developer audience, and then the testers who were you know it was a different tester every time weren't ever familiar with that, our application. It was like a big pool of testers. And so we got a lot of false failures where it was it was either the developer didn't write the test case specific enough to like reduce, remove ambiguity, or the 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 tester wasn't familiar enough with the application and uh, you know didn't know that this actually was the way it was supposed to work. So we kind of tried that and it, it didn't work well either. There would be people in the industry that would argue that what would work better or worse if you just had between the developers owning all those tests and just actually hiring a tester to you know co-locate or at least co we don't co-locate during covid but uh hiring a full-time tester as part of the team to work with you same tester working with you every day what are the pros and cons of that versus having the developers own what you ended up with i th- i think that would have worked a lot better for us honestly like i think the the pros definitely the tester becomes a as long as it's they're set up within the organization like the right way, they become an expert on the application. And so they are not dependent on developers or product managers or whatever to build the test cases beyond just like, hey, I need to know like what the new functionality is coming so I can build the test cases for it. I think that the con in that case is just time. It just seems like with test teams out of any part of the organization, time is the biggest limiting factor for them. So, Here, here's where the theory of constraints comes into play. Go ahead. Yeah, Nick. yeah. I was about to say, Nick, how do you feel about that <laughs> from a from yeah. a constraints point of view? Yeah, I, I it's something that I observe all the time um, is that teams seem to have an abundance of capacity, or at least plenty of capacity, on the developer side, and then they go, okay, well, I guess we should test some of this code, and then are under capacity that they're, they're under, um, you know, staffed on the testing side. 
And so I, I talk with a lot of teams that can create, you know, build code uh, 10x faster than they can test it. And so in that situation, when you talk about the startup that Todd and I were at before, we certainly could have brought a dedicated test team in. But would there have been um, the enthusiasm to staff that team at the level that would re be required to be able to um, break it as a bottleneck, to be able to make tests, to, to, to not have testing impact the velocity of the overall dev team. Um, and certainly my experience, and I'm of the four of us here, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the greenest grass, I'm the least experienced, but certainly my experience is that a lot of leaders, a lot of CTOs, don't feel like they're getting enough value out of out of uh, a code-based um, testing process or or their current testing process because um, you know they're 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 not they're they're still not they're 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 chucking resources at it they're they're in whatever way they're trying to solve it whether that's a dedicated team of estets whether that's manual testers um, and testing is still a bottleneck like okay well how far do we have to <laughs> How 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 deep does my pocket have to be to solve this problem? Uh, and so I, I think that's where the Todd and, and Fitz and the team here and, and other other tools like like you said, Alan, that are in our space, that's our advantage is you know, we can just do this faster. And I think Alan, that was the impetus of the whole conversation last time. You're like, why why would we be writing all this code if we if we don't have to, like, it, has it reached a point where we don't have to? And so, yeah, I think um, I think I've gone down a rabbit hole of, of a tangent here, and I'm not sure where, no, no, how to get no, out of it. Tangents are part of the podcast, so that's totally fine. But but I want to tell a story of systems thinking or theory of constraints gone bad from my past. And this is actually overlaps with probably all of Microsoft, so it'll it'll relate to Brent as well. But there was a time in. For several years, Microsoft had very much a one-to-one -one developer to tester ratio, a little bit less in some places, a little bit more in others. And I remember I worked on Link, which was called Communicator before then, it eventually became Skype for Business, which was part of Office. So I got a, I got a little insight into the Office machine of test automation. They had a you know, one-to-one -one test ratio across a huge, huge org, so thousand testers, maybe more, all writing, almost all writing lots of automation. The bottleneck was the flaky tests. This is pre, this isn't even web Selenium stuff. This is just, just flaky tests because of flaky tools, uh, flaky ownership, all kinds of problems we don't even go into today. But where the theory of constraints would maybe if we actually paused and stopped to think about it. Uh, we may have gone with a different approach to try and figure out how to handle that bottleneck of testing when every day 90% of those testers spent the first three or four hours of their day debugging failed tests to see if they were a false positive or not, to see if there was a product bug. Invest, and then the, the ones that weren't were investing their time in writing tools to do automatic analysis of failed tests to try and figure out. Uh, we had this AFA, automated failure analysis, to try and figure out if the failures were really failures, if there were false positives, create reports about it. And, you know, in hindsight, I can look back and at the time I was like, oh, cool, this is cool technology, AFA. But as I stop now and look back, I go, oh, man, that was bad. That was really bad. And I don't know how you feel about that, Brent, but 
those experiences and then watching what had happened over the years with dedicated test teams writing a lot of selenium i just knew it was bad too so uh I want a time machine and go back to fix the things that I allowed to happen 10 and 15 years ago. But in the meantime, like I said, a half hour ago in this podcast, I'm glad that my wild ideas about how we should approach this UI animation today aren't actually so wild. So that's cool. But Back back when I was a test manager, I, I actually had conversations with my boss, very similar to what Nick was saying, where he had a firmly held belief that the number of testers he needed to ship his product under the constraints, no matter what N was, the number he needed was always N plus one. Right? <laughs> always. And it, it, he felt like he was in a trap that he couldn't get out of. And it, and it was, it, and as we hired more and more and, and tried to solve more and more problems, like bigger problems uh, uh, blew up. Alan was just talking about, and then I was just thinking about one very, I'm, a, I'm not mentioning names to protect the innocent, but one very big example was there was this really important suite uh, that was executed and nearly 75% of the tests pass without the product being in, even installed. Right. So it was well, the, the industry is full of stories like that. I think, I think it was Brian yeah. Merrick. I could be wrong. Told the story. It could have been Ken Kaner. Um, but someone told a story about how something similar happened when the power was off in the test lab or something similar to that. Fun stories. Hey, um, you were going somewhere. Never mind, Brent. Were you done? We, we all have sort of stories of the, uh, I think we have stories on this one. So is it right to assume that at this point in time, does Reflect have special uh, test specialists within his staff? You mean, do we have uh, like SDETs or on our, in our organization? Right. Dedicated to testing. So we're, we're a team of five. So we don't have any uh, testers in our organization. We have two engineers, myself, my co-founder and Nick, who's a uh, business development sales. Oh no. Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. Oh. You're, to you're totally fine. <laughs> oh. yeah, I'll see myself out. No, no, no. To totally. No, no, no. I mean, yeah. I mean, okay. So, so you have no testers. Yeah. What right? are, so, of our no, and, and, wait, 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 hold on a second. No, the way you're saying uh, that is 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 setting up the wrong thing. Like one of our principles, one of the things we've discovered, and not and again, our modern testing principles aren't anything we've invented. They're about what we're seeing happen in the industry, and we see is depending on context and knowledge. There are many examples where you don't need a dedicated testing dedicated testing specialist on your team. You're cool in our eyes. No, no, I, I, it was just a fact. I wasn't judging. Them. I know you sounded judgy. We we felt judged, yeah. Brent. We did. Yeah, yeah. See. <laughs> All right. So 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 let me set the space. Uh, let me let me set the bar because uh, now I'm going to say something super judgy. All right. So you guys don't have any testers. So, so clearly you understand, and you probably get this from your customer feedback, that you don't care about the quality of your product and are actually shipping crap to your customers. Branch, shut up. Right? No, no, no. It's tongue in cheek. I'm not actually accusing you, but this is the sort of crap that me and Alan get all the time. Right? So. Yeah, but, but we're, we're, all, we're all smarter than those people. Well, no. So they're customers. So here, I want to. I, I do want to bring in 
bring in Nick. Like, what do your customers say? Who, who are you targeting? We, we started this off of, hey, hey, we do have a marketing plan to, to attack devs or, or market to, to these dev camps. Are they coming back? Are they feeling successful? Yeah. Right? yeah. And, yeah and obviously you wouldn't come on a podcast and say no to that. So maybe you're comfortable sharing like a, a horror story as well to, to sort of balance it out. Yeah, I, I, that's fine. <laughs> I, I guess in, in terms of, of a horror story, I'll, I'll certainly leave that to Todd because uh, he has uh, he has a longer history of horror stories potentially to draw on. But uh, I, I, we 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 target um, today. We work with businesses of all sizes. We work with like large financial institutions. We work with small teams of five or ten people. Our most sort of common customer is a hyper growth startup with. 30 to 100 employees in that sense they are they understand we're a startup too and so if there are ever sort of chinks in the armor we generally have a fairly forgiving crowd i would also say we have pretty high standards um the i think being a testing tool requires that you have a, a pretty decent um testing or, or at least remedying process in place so yeah, I mean, Todd, I don't know if you want to speak to some of the horror stories, but in terms of numbers, you know, we just passed, we're, we're a young company, but we just passed our millionth test run. Um, and and so we're, uh, I think we're certainly seeing people come back to the well and, and feel like the quality of the product, um, you know, it, ultimately we're a team of five. We have, we have thousands of users, hundreds and hundreds of paying customers. And so the quality that we're putting out there, people, what I mean to say is people have to teach themselves how to use the tool and people have to come and adopt it and try it and like it. And so quality is huge for us because if you try it and it's broken, you're not coming back. Um, so yeah, for the, from the horror story perspective though, I will pass it over to Todd and, uh, and, uh, and let him take the, take the bullet. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely can share a horror story. Um, I would also just add, because so many testers are users, that's very helpful because it keeps us honest. You know, they, you know, they're great at giving us bug reports and telling us, you know, have an eye for detail. So that's, that's helped us, um, you know, improve the product for sure. Um, in terms of parser is like, what, what are you looking for brand? Is it is like a, a customer gone wrong or, you know, just an organization that, kind of seemed upside down what 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 can i provide for you um no i actually so i'll just say up front i'm not certain you're going to give me the 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 horror story that that the audience would want because i don't actually think there's one here right it, see the the uh one of the arguments is oh no no we need we need testers within the team uh because number one, first and foremost, devs can't test because they 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 don't have objectivity. They they you know we're asking devs to test their own code, and therefore like you're you're providing testing a testing product. Uh, you don't have testers hey, on. Hey, there. hey Brent, you're you're bringing you're bringing our own baggage into their baggage they uh, don't have. Well, they and get that's it. actually. That's actually my point, Alan, is, you know what? This is a startup. 
that's that's succeeding as best as I can tell, uh, doing exactly sort of the the, the modern testing yeah. principle. And what? Uh, yes, exactly. And what I want to talk about yeah. for our last uh, eight or nine minutes here is another thing. Uh, this is a variation of what I led with at the top, but. I believe that the future of success in testing tools is to stop marketing those tools to testers and to begin marketing and target. Of course, you're for everyone, and that's that's where the market is, and that's totally good. But I think the the future spoils comes to those who find a way to get the developers interested in those testing tools. And this covers all that that unconscious incompetence talked about and knowledge, et cetera. I think there's something huge there. So uh, you've had success there. It's wide open. What are you doing? Like, I don't know what my question is. It's really just a statement. How are you actually, how are you getting developers to discover your product? Cause often they don't look for testing tools. Yeah. So we, uh, it's a couple different ways. So we're a freemium product. So people will just come on and start using it. So by being a freemium product, in some sense, you don't control who, how people find you or, you know, you kind of do your best. You try to write relevant articles and kind of um, get in front of people, but people just seem to find us and use it. And the and a subset of them are sticky and part of that subset is developers. But we do go out and talk to CTOs directly. And so when we talk to a CTO at an organization, some of those organizations are going to have a team of developers. Some of them are only going to be, uh, you know, or sorry, a team of developers and testers. Some of them are only going to be developers. And uh, it's, it's stuck with kind of both camps. But I think if you're marketing a, a developer tool, like there's some things that you definitely need. You need a freemium product, number one, because devs aren't going to pay for something unless they can use it. Um, number two, you need really good documentation. Uh, we think like ideally like with videos, uh, that's particularly helpful. And then it needs to be an intuitive enough product that's powerful enough for the, the developer. I think that's probably where we're lacking right now is just the power we started out with building something that tried to do everything that it can do for you. Uh, and you kind of, what you lose in expressibility, it does kind of automatically for you. But as we had more of like the SDET developer persona come in, what we found is that they need that power in order to define exactly what they're trying to do. And so those are the kind of features that we're adding. We're kind of approaching it from like the standpoint of like, what would like a, testing IDE look like, you know, what would debugging a test look like? Very cool. And the point I want to call out here just for our listeners and our principals is, is you have a product out there, people are using it and you're adapting it as you go based on their needs. And that's, that's where quality comes from, right? Because only the customer could evaluate whether your product is high quality or not, whether it's giving them value. And the way you do that is you listen to them and give them what they need. Yeah. We, we had to rethink some of our assumptions about it for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe it's yeah. worth pointing out that like we talk about these modern testing principles. Again, we didn't invent them. We just tried to document what we were seeing. And as we talk about them, people go, oh, yeah, that's what we do. You have a, a name what we're doing. Of course, that makes sense. What we hear, I, I don't know if any of you ever even looked at the modern testing principles. But as I hear you talk, it's like, yeah, here's a company out of nowhere. Never heard of them. They, they didn't. It just made sense. I think it's a, probably a combination of smart development and having someone on staff who knows theory of constraints really well. Well, I'll give the credit to Nick there. For, uh... <laughs> this is a career high point for me. 
but yeah, I mean, it's thank you. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I think I think it's still important to have a product that's opinionated. Like we still we still take some pretty opinionated opinions. Like for example, in the product, um, you can actually add a step uh, through the GUI. Like you have to record it. Like there's no way to button to like click add step. So everything's done through our recorder. Uh, and then another one is like we try to abstract away the concept of selectors. So you can't actually manually add a selector. We generate them all automatically for you with the idea that we feel like that's kind of like a subset of the testing problem where we think we could solve it for the 90, 95, 99% case. Exactly. The, the, don't, just, don't get me started. So I don't I don't know if you were aware, we did a podcast with Hugs on, on the podcast. Oh, really? No, yeah. I have to listen to that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we, Alan, Alan made a statement. It reached out the hugs. Hugs came on, and we had it. We ended up having a. This is uh, this, this is worth this is worth calling out for our guests. I made a statement. I found a blog post. Someone talking about how clever they were for solving a problem in Selenium, and it was a eighty character selector statement that they used, and I quoted it and said. You know, reason number 435 why I don't like Selenium. People are excited about statements like this. And I showed that big, big, huge, like, and uh, a whole bunch of people got really mad at me. And again, it's not Selenium's fault. There are all kinds of ways to fix that. No, but I, I, I but, but, but anyway, he, he caught onto that thread, then volunteered to come on the podcast and he was very gracious. He wasn't mad at us. He, he tried to pick a fight with us. We did not fight. We did not try to bait us, I guess. We did not bite and end up being a really good conversation. Yeah. The, and, and I th- do think that he, he uh, I mean, I'm old and it was a while ago, but I do think we got him to eventually, eventually agree that actually Selenium was constructing a dysfunctional behavior, particularly around these selectors. So, yeah, I, I even... Based on the, the this the conversation we had with Hugs, I would actually say he probably would would likely support the fact that you're blocking people from going that direction. Because right? uh, your goal is you want the, the the maintenance costs of these tests to be zero. Yeah. Right. That, if you go down this right. path, you go down this path, it's going to be non-zero, almost guaranteed. Yeah. And the, the best way to do that is to do things on behalf of the user, as long as you can get it right. Like the, I don't want to knock on Apple, but like when Siri gets it wrong, that's an extremely frustrating experience. But, you know, when you have something that gets it right, it's a magical experience. So it's like a higher bar to achieve it. But that's that's what you can actually have, you know, uh, a tool work for you instead of you kind of fighting the tool. Yeah, yeah. I was just excited to have you on here to talk about those two big questions around you know, statements I had made. And and even if you didn't back me up, uh, I just really love the way, like the engineering approach, like you got, you are all taking the five of you at your company. It's, it's the way I think successful software is made. And I think you've are also on the right track in remembering that developers are part of who you need to con- target. And to hear that you have developers, not testers, well, in addition to testers, you have developers who are using your tool. It's like, yes, yes, this thing that I'm imagining in my head, it's actually true. And I didn't have anything to do with it. It just happened because it's the right thing to happen. So that's awesome. Any closing words from you all before we call it a Friday afternoon slash evening? Yeah, I'll say, hey, uh, thank you very much for joining. 
And actually, we haven't talked about it. Did you, part of your closing words, do you want to go ahead and plug your product? Sure. Yeah. So, so Reflect is a freemium tool. You can go to reflect.run and sign up and uh, use it right away. Uh, I would say the biggest difference that we, we have is that the recorder uh, runs in the browser. And uh, we tried to make a frictionless experience where you can start from zero and end up with a test in a couple minutes. Give us a try. I'd love to get your feedback. I guess I would only add to that the evidence that you can create a test in a couple of minutes uh, without writing code is proven by the layman of the podcast, me being able to create hundreds of tests at this point. Uh, and so, uh, you know, from uh, for what it's worth, I think the proof has been in the pudding uh, from that end. But but guys, it's been really great to, to chat with you. And thanks for having us on to, to um, you know, talk about Alan's uh, stroke of genius and our our hurry to catch up and make it happen for him. There's a phrase we never hear. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I, it hurt my head. I'm completely confused <laughs> as to what you're talking about. <laughs> All right, then we'll, uh, again, our, our immense pleasure having you on, uh, incredible conversation. Thank you for being here and we'll see everybody next time.